Well, I asked earlier in the, in the service if your life was characterized by joy. If your morning had been characterized by joy, has your week been characterized by joy? Let me just broaden it out. Is, is your life characterized by joy? And I asked that question, um, feeling like I, God is answering that question already. I, I, think, I think I almost feel dumb for asking that question now. The joy we have in Christ. But do we experience that regularly? That's, an, I think, a really uh, appropriate question to ask. And it's not something that joy is not something that I think a lot of people experience regularly. Uh, there was an article in the Chicago Tribune that I was reading just this week that was highlighting a, a pretty alarming rise in the, the number of diagnoses for depression and anxiety in our society, in this country, particularly among younger people, teenagers, 20-somethings, and millennials were, were highlighted in the article. Uh, though the increases have been seen among all age groups, and this is a pretty this is an interesting statistic. It's it's actually pretty pretty frightening. the the major uh, the rate of major depression among young adults age 18 to 25 between 2009 and 2017 rose 63 percent. That's according to the Journal of Abnormal Psychology. That's a that's scientific study. 63% rise in a 12 or a 10 year period of time in major depression diagnoses amongst young people. And researchers aren't sure exactly why it is, but they have some well-reasoned theories. And I'll 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 kind of unfold some of those theories as we go through the sermon this morning because I think it's interesting that the Apostle Paul addresses those theories in this letter to Philippians. This letter that was written some 2,000 years ago will find speaks directly to the reasons why scientists today are saying we lack joy. And it's because it's human nature for us to lack joy. We're sinful people, right? We're broken people. And we're meant to find our joy in our Creator. We're meant to find our joy in Christ. And of course, that's what Paul wants to point us to in very specific ways. Paul wants to point us towards joy. That's a major theme of the book of Philippians. It appears that that word joy appears some 16 times throughout the letter. So as we go through this book, we're going to be talking about joy a lot. There's another theme that we're going to be talking about a lot, and it's the theme of unity. Because even as Paul is pointing us to what it means to have joy in Christ, we'll see that there's a, there's a clear direction here from him that part, part of the way we experience that joy is by experiencing the oneness that we have together as the body of Christ. So joy and unity are big themes. That's why it's over there. Joy and unity in Christ. That's the name of our sermon series in Philippians. Let's talk a little bit about joy, just so we understand what we're talking about. Because you all... You know, the, you know the word, but, but there's probably lots of ways that we can define joy, maybe different ways that you would understand it. So here's the definition that I'm working from. And this is a definition that I've worked from for a long time. And if you've been around Edgewater for a, a period of time, you've heard me say this countless numbers of times. Here's the definition of joy. It is a settled and unwavering belief, or you could say conviction, a settled and unwavering conviction that a very good God is always in control. That's joy. It's that settled, unwavering belief or conviction that a very good God is always in control. What do I mean by the word settled? I mean it's certain. 
It means that you're not unsure about that conviction or belief. It's, it's like you're, you're drilled into a foundation in it. It is unwavering in that regard. right? Just as sure as the sun will rise every morning, you can believe that God is good and that He's in control. And in fact, we could even say if the sun didn't rise in the morning, God's in control. Right? That's what it means to be settled in that conviction. And it's an unwavering conviction. You don't ever, you don't sway in it, right? It's again, it's it's anchored in 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 a in a in a deep-seated sense of reliability. I like that. Right? Don't you want you want that? You want that kind of, of conviction, you want that kind of certainty in your understanding of what joy is, if you know that joy is something you can have. And that's what we're promised here. That's what we're going to be pointed to. So here's the bottom line about joy. If you're, if you're, if you're you know, thinking about a definition re- revolving around the one that I just gave you, you have to say this. It's not a feeling. Joy is not a feeling. Again, it's a conviction. It's not based on how you feel. It's based on who God is. Who He is. And who we are in Him, which means that you can have joy in any circumstance. Any circumstance. And one of the key ways that we'll experience this joy, as Paul's going to show us in this book, is by finding our joy in the shared life. That's an important phrase. The shared life that we have in Christ, shared life with Him, and shared life with one another as His body. Our shared life in the church. You will experience joy when you experience and you understand clearly what it means that you have a shared life with Jesus and with each other as the body. Okay? I hope that whets your appetite for the study of Philippians. If this study is something that can drive home a conviction like that, that you can have joy... No matter what. That I can come in here on a Sunday and, and I can say, are you experiencing joy this week? And you can do more than go... Right? That we can have joy no matter what, then this is a book worth digging into. If that's, the, if that's the kind of growth that God wants to give us, if that's the perspective He wants to give us, then this is a book worth digging into. And I'm excited to do that. I hope you are too. And so let's do it. Alright? Let's dig in. And uh, let, me, let, me, let me give you two, two main things. And I've already done it, but I'm going to categorize it here. Two main things that we're looking at this morning in terms of our joy and unity in Christ. The first one is that, that we find joy in knowing our identity in Christ. So if you take notes, that's our first point this morning. Joy in knowing our identity in Christ. Look at verse 1 of Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's, that's the introduction to the book. It tells us something about who's writing the book. Of course, Paul is writing the book. Timothy is with him. Who's he writing it to? He's writing it to the church in Philippi, to all the whole church with their overseers. That's the elders and their deacons, right? But it's more here than just an introduction. I wonder how often you skip over introductions in Bible books, you know, and, and don't, don't, don't take the time to kind of drill down into them. Because often there's some rich truths embedded into the opening words 
of pastoral epistles. Paul and Timothy, he says, are we are servants of Christ Jesus. The word there in Greek is doulos. We are doulos of, of Jesus, which means we are bondservants of Jesus. That's the literal, literal interpretation. We're bondservants of Christ. Now that's a significant thing for Paul to say, and I'll give you a little historical background as to why it's significant. Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian church from prison. Paul's in a Roman prison. So in a very real and literal sense, everybody who knows Paul's circumstance could say, Paul, you are currently right now a bondservant of the law. Paul, you are right now a a servant of Rome because you are without rights, without privileges, without freedom, locked up in a cage under that strong arm of the prison. And yet Paul would say, nah, (laughs) that's true, but that's not how I think of myself. That's not how I think of myself. I'm a servant. I'm, I'm bound to. I am submitting myself under the complete authority, not of Rome, but of Jesus. That's who I am. My identity, first and foremost, is as a bondservant of Jesus. I'm, I belong to Him. I know my circumstances right now aren't real good. I know my reputation may be a bit sullied because of that. But that's not who I am. I belong to Jesus. And I'm writing to you to let you know that not only do I belong to Jesus, not only is my identity in Christ, so is yours. To the saints who are in Philippi, you also belong to Jesus. Which is a significant thing for them to recognize. Because more historical, cultural background Philippi was a very interesting city. So Philippi is, is sort of on the, on, the, on the very western edge of modern-day Turkey, into kind of where Greece is. Philippi is, is actually in, in Europe. All right? So everything about the Gospel so far that's been, that's been moving and spreading and planting churches has mostly been occurring in, you know, in Palestine, in, in sort of what we would call Asia Minor, you know, the eastern part of Turkey. But when, it, when the Gospel got into Philippi, when God led Paul into that region to begin to plant churches, now we see the first planting of churches in Europe. And Philippi was not just under Roman occupation like all the rest of the world was at that time, but Philippi was actually a colony of Rome. A, it had citizenship rights. It was not like an occupied territory. It was like part of the motherland. It was Roman. Its citizens were Roman citizens. So there was a great opportunity, if you're a Philippian, to take a lot of pride in your identity as a Roman to take a lot of pride in your identity and your citizenship as belonging to this current empire. And Paul says, listen, I know that that's who you you could be identified as. I know that's how you might be thinking of yourselves in a positive way. Or maybe you recognize that, that you're a church and your pastor, me, is in jail and that seems like a very negative thing. There's a lot of ways that you could be identifying yourselves in a very earthly mindset. But I'm here to tell you that no, you first and foremost find your identity in Jesus too. You belong to Him. 
I belong to Him, you belong to Him. This church is who we are. And it's an important detail that can't be overlooked. If you want to talk about what it means to have joy, you've got to start with this reality that our identity is in Jesus. Why is that so important? Well, because so often we lack joy. So often someone can say, are you experiencing joy? And you'll be like, because we so often try to find our identity in so many other things. In so many lesser things. You say, what is this identity that you're, that you're talking about, Bill? Well, it's, it's that thing. Your identity is that thing that you would cling to to say, this is what makes me fully alive. This is what gives me purpose. This is what gives me value. This is what gives me security. This is the thing that if I, if I can cling to this and it's going okay, I'm okay. And conversely, if this thing that I'm clinging to is going south, so am I. Right? It's that, it's that anchor point of our lives. What kinds of things do we so often look to as those anchor points in our lives as 21st century Americans? Things that we seek to put our identity in. They're actually not that different from the things that people have always looked to. Our career. Someone says, who are you? What are you? I'm an engineer, right? I'm a teacher. I'm a, you know, whatever it is that you do. Now, those things are true about who you are. If your vocation, something you're spending 40 plus hours a week on, it's a significant part of your life, right? But if that career and the ambitions of your career become the thing that you anchor your security in, your sense of worth and purpose, if you were to lose it, you would be ruined. Or if you were to succeed wildly in it, you would have it all. Then you found your identity in it. That's closely tied to our bank accounts, isn't it? So many of us find our identity in the status of our bank accounts. If our bank accounts are full, our lives are full. And if our bank accounts are empty, our lives can feel very empty. Now again, those are real circumstances. But if they make or break your sense of being alive, worth, purpose, identity, they've taken on too much of a role. How about our beauty, our appearance, our body image? How many of us are constantly focused on those things for our sense of worth? Acceptance in relationships. Maybe if you're a young person, your grades, your GPA, your social status, the level of popularity, what table do you get to sit at at lunchtime? All these things that, that identify us if we allow them to. And that brings me to the article I was pointing you to earlier from the Chicago Tribune. One of the major causes of the recent rise in depression, the one that they highlighted most, by the way, according to psychologists, is the societal pressure to achieve. 
Right? All of these things, my career, my bank account, my, my image, my acceptance, relationships, my, my performance at school, whatever, all of those things are so tied into this idea of achieving. If I can just do this, then I will be, you know, okay. When we try to find our identity in things like that, when we try to find our sense of worth and purpose in the things that we achieve, joy is very elusive. And I don't have to say that. You know that. Joy is very elusive because you can't maintain those things. You have very little control over any of those things. And you so often will find yourself feeling less than fully alive when you've banked on those things. And so Paul says, listen, I want to start by reminding us who we are. What's your identity? Here's mine. I'm a servant of Jesus. Here's yours. You're His saints. You belong to Him. And he rolls into this, this, this beautiful little phrase then as he reminds them of who they are that speaks so much of the, 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 the foundation, the, the, the content that helps them believe who they are. He says this. He says, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace. It's a salutation, right? But there's so much more than a salutation. There's words here that have deep meaning that help us understand who we are. The first one is that we are people who are identified in Christ by grace. Grace is God's free favor to people who don't deserve it. In other words, if you're putting your identity in your achievement, the good news of the Gospel is that in Christ, your identity in God is not rooted in how well you've achieved, because you didn't. It's rooted in God's Free favor towards you because of who He is, not because of what you've done. You are recipients of the grace of God. And peace is the result of that grace. Because God has given you what you don't deserve. He's removed your inability to achieve by covering it by the perfect life lived by the Savior Jesus his death to atone for your sin at the cross. God's free gift of, of, of not only forgiveness, but salvation and hope and eternity. All of that that comes to us by grace in Jesus brings about then peace. Oh, peace. All those things that, that, were, that were robbing me of joy, that were weighing me down, that were making me feel like I couldn't keep up. He takes and gives us peace first with Himself, your account with Me because of what My Son has accomplished on your behalf is settled forever. And peace with one another. Now you can begin to operate in that freedom by loving one another the way I have loved you without the burden of constantly comparing yourselves to one another of constantly competing with one another, of constantly trying to achieve around one another. You've been freed from that. Peace with me. Peace with each other. That's who you are, saints. You are fully alive when you recognize who you are in Him, recognizing who He is and what He's done. And Paul wants to start there because this is the stuff that's 
that, 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 that joy is made of. That's the starting point for our joy. This settled and unwavering belief that God is always in control. He's in control of what? The cosmos? Yes. But your lives specifically, because of His grace and peace to you, He's taking control of all that you were trying to control and failing to control. And when we know that, our joy is found because our identity is now found in Christ. And that's at the forefront of our minds and it's the forefront of our hearts. So that's the first thing. Our joy is found in our identity in Christ. Here's the second thing. Our joy is also found in seeing Christ's continuing work in each other. Philippians 1 verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. In every prayer of mine for you all, I should have said, making my prayer with joy. So as he's thanking God for his remembrance of this church, he says it brings great joy to me. What was he thinking of? What is he remembering when he thinks of the Philippian church? Well, this is an interesting thing, and you can read about this in Acts chapter 16. But we learn some things there about Philippi. The first thing is that if you, if you follow along the missionary journeys of Paul, you know that when, when Paul and his companions would go into a new city, the first thing that they would do is they would go into the synagogue in that place. And they'd begin to preach the gospel in the synagogue. And the reason they would do that is because they were looking for the Jews in that city. They were looking for those who already had a, a foundational knowledge of the God of the Bible. Right? Start with the people of God, expose them to the Savior that God has provided for them, and, and see how the church is then birthed from that point going forward. But when he gets to Philippi, and he goes into the city and finds there's no synagogue in the city. And what were the requirements for having a synagogue in a city? The requirements were you had to have ten Jewish men living in a city. Philippi was a very big city, but there was no synagogue, meaning there were there were not ten Jewish men to be found in this, in this place. So he's going into what we might call a very unchurched situation. right? He's going into a place that, that had very little, if any, knowledge of, of who God was to begin to expose them to who Jesus is. So he, he, he and his companions leave the city and they go outside the city and they suppose that maybe they can find outside of the city some believers, some, some Jews. And they do. They find a group of women who are down at a river and they're they're praying. And one of those women is a woman named Lydia. And as they begin to share with these women the truth of who Jesus is, Lydia comes to know Christ by faith. And her whole household does. And she invites them into her home. And she happens to be a pretty wealthy woman. And so she's the very first convert in Europe. And a church begins to now form in her home. And so Paul and his companions go back into the city and they begin to proclaim more of the good news of Jesus and they confront this, this, this woman who is enslaved. She's demon-possessed and she's been enslaved by, by men in the city who have taken advantage of her demon possession. She's got sort of like fortune-telling abilities. And they've basically used that for monetary gain. They, they've just kind of made her like a sideshow. And so she begins to, to speak and the, the, the demon activity in her begins to, we're actually told in the text, annoy Paul. 
But he releases her through the, the power of the gospel, releases her from that demonic burden. And she becomes a, a believer. She becomes a follower of Jesus. Which upsets the, the, the people who kind of owned her. And they get upset and they take him before the courts and the whole city's like, who are these guys? They're turning the city upside down with this talk about Jesus and they get thrown in jail. And they get shackled. And they get put in the lower prison. I mean, they're like, they're like in sort of solitary confinement. And they begin to sing. And they begin to pray. And in the middle of the night, God causes an earthquake to happen that breaks all their chains free and opens the prison doors wide open. And the guy who was in charge of the prison sees what's going on and he panics knowing that if they get out, if they've escaped, it's his life. So he takes out his sword and he he goes to kill himself. And Paul says, whoa, 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 don't do that. We're still here. We're still here. And they preach the Gospel to this guy and he gets saved. And his whole household gets saved. And suddenly, in this big, important Roman city where there was no witness for God whatsoever, Paul can look into that very difficult ministry context and remember, man, God did something there. He started a church there. And these people that I'm writing to, I I can continually see God is is doing something in in a place that it doesn't look like God would be doing anything. And it gives them a tremendous amount of joy. I love that because sometimes ministry is really hard. Sometimes ministry is really hard because it's easy to get discouraged looking around and seeing all the things that, that appear to be sort of in opposition to the work of God. All the people who aren't coming to, to salvation. All, the, all of the things that are broken around us. All of the things that, that seem like obstacles to the proclamation of the Gospel and the growth of the church, right? And you can get discouraged by those things. But Paul's, Paul's not doing that. He's, he's saying, no, I'm looking at what God is doing. And it's a miracle what God is doing. God is creating a church in this place. And this church is continuing to grow. So Paul wants them to see that. There's still problems. We're going to find out as we go along. There's, there's, there's some conflict in this church. There's still some difficulty for this church learning how to live counterculturally in a, in a very Roman place as believers. And yet Paul wants them to say, don't, don't look through your own eyes. Don't see the things the way that, that, that it would be so easy to humanly see them. Look what God's doing. And let that be a source of your joy. And what is God doing? Verse 5, he says he thanks God because of your partnership in the Gospel from the first day until now. Their partnership in the Gospel brings Paul joy as he prays. This word partnership, by the way, is, is a, familiar, uh, a familiar word in, in the New Testament. It's the Greek word koinonia, which we usually translate as fellowship. What does that mean, fellowship? Actually, I think it means something that's a little bit different than what we often think. Because in modern usage, the word fellowship has kind of lost a little bit of its oomph. Right? We're about to have lunch today. After church, we've got all these sandwiches coming. We're going to go downstairs. We're going to have lunch in a room that we call Fellowship Hall. Right? And we call it Fellowship Hall because what we do down there is we often have lunch together. Or we have other activities that go on. And we think a lot about those activities very often like they're social things. 
You ever think about that? If you invite your neighbor out for coffee, that's usually called friendship. But if you invited another Christian out for coffee, what is it called? Fellowship. What's the difference, right? Right? We've kind of like made fellowship this sort of Christianese word for hanging out together, right? Potlucks, barbecues, that's fellowship. It's social by nature. But that's not what the word meant in the context that Paul's writing into in the first century. In fact, back then, this word fellowship or koinonia would, would have more of a business connotation to it, more of a kind of a commercial use. So in that, in that sense, for example, let's say, let's say Jake Muscat and I get together and, and we, we sort of put our, we pull together our vast resources and vast passions for domestic things like baking. That was supposed to make you laugh. Me and Jake, come on. We open up a muffin shop on Clark Street, a cupcake shop on Clark Street, and we go into business together with this, this ambition and this goal to say we're committed together to this common vision of seeing muffins and cupcakes in every home in this neighborhood. That, in the New Testament context, would be more of the, of the meaning of what fellowship is. It's this idea of a shared vision together, often working towards a shared vision, towards a shared end, accomplishing something. So the definition of fellowship is really this. It's self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. And Paul's saying, when I think about the church, and I think about what God is doing in you, this is what I'm seeing, and this is what gives me joy. I see this, this, this self-sacrificing conformity together to this shared vision of what? Of a partnership in the Gospel. Of seeing the Gospel do its work accomplish what it has to accomplish not only in you but in your community in other words when you gather together what you're doing is you've got this clear forward direction that you share together in unity to say this is about the gospel this is about jesus this is about making him known and growing in him and seeing this word proclaimed here among us and amongst our community that's what their fellowship centered around by the way, this article that I read earlier this week in the Chicago Tribune, you know what it says the other major contributor, at least the assumption of the other major contributor to the rise in depression is? According to psychologists, it's isolation. People today, it says, are spending on average an hour less per day on face-to-face interactions than people in the 1980s were doing. And there's been a sharp increase in loneliness documented since the 1980s. That's according to a study in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships. So again, another scientific study. So what's happening? We're not partnering together with people. We're not entering into shared vision with people. We're not seeing koinonia as an important part of life. We're isolating ourselves and it's causing us to be depressed. Paul's saying, you want joy? Not only be reminded of, of, of who you are in Christ, who God is and what He's doing in you, be reminded that He's working together in you to give you relationship and shared vision with one another for the, the work of the Gospel. And when we do that, like Paul we'll find a tremendous amount 
of joy. And Paul says in verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began this good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So not only is what, this is what God has been doing and is currently doing, this is what God will continue to do, and He'll continue to do that until He comes again. Which means there's an opportunity for you for the rest of your lives, however long you live it, whether you live it until you die or whether you live it until He comes back, to have joy. It just keeps getting better and better. And that's a major source of joy in Paul's life. It's what he's encouraging the Philippians to take joy in as well. Lastly, in verse 7 and 8, he says, It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you're all partakers of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I, learn, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's saying there, my love for you is kindled by the love of God. I love you. It's kindled by the love of God. And I want you to find believers in Philippi. I want you to find this joy in seeing what God is doing in you and in one another. So let me just give some brief application here. Brief application for us. I ask the question, are you lacking joy in your life? The, the, first, the first clear thing that we have to ask ourselves is this. Is my identity in Christ? Do you know Jesus? Do you know the work that He came to accomplish on your behalf? Do you know that apart from Him, you were, as Ephesians 2 says, by nature, a child of wrath, separated from the God who made you, dead in your trespasses, dead in your sins. But by the grace and the mercy of God, He sends His Son to rescue you. He sent His Son to take that sin, place it upon Himself, and absorb the righteous justice of God at the cross. He paid the debt. Justice was satisfied. We said that earlier in one of the songs that we sang. And by faith in Christ, then, you're, you're forgiven. As we turn to Him in repentance and faith, we are forgiven. We are set free. We receive the mercy and the grace of God. Set free to live new lives. That's what it means to be in Christ. Christian, do you, do you remember who you are in Christ? Is your identity in Christ? And then secondly, then, if you are in Christ, are you focusing on the gospel work that God is doing in and through His church? Are you looking for that? Are you allowing Him to reveal that to you and be encouraged by it? What we've learned from these opening verses is that the fellowship of our partnership of the gospel must be, must be at the center of our relationships with each other. That's got to be the center of our, of our relationships with other believers. Our joy depends on that. So think about this. What ties us together, Edgewater? What ties us together as God's people here? What do we talk about when we meet together on a Sunday morning? Do we talk about the weather? 
We talk about the Bears. That's a sad conversation this week. <laughs> we talk about the Cubs. That's a sad conversation this week, right? Do we talk about just sort of mere civilities? Like, what, what, what do we do when we get together? You know, there's nothing wrong with talking about the weather or the Bears, usually. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. But, 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 but the point is that, that our, our conversations... The center of our conversation, the things that we share, the vision that we share, if it's to really tie us together and tie us together with a sense of joy, it's, it's, it's got to be back on that, that one thing that really does tie us together. Our shared life in Christ. Our shared identity in who He is and our shared calling in the work that He's called us to in bringing the Gospel about in each other's lives and the lives of others. Think about this. What else could tie us together? Just like when we try to find our joy, our identity in our careers or our grades or our bank accounts, and those things fail us, just the same thing's true of us as a church. If we try to find our, our tie together in anything other than who Christ is and what He's done, it's not going to hold together. Especially when you look around this room and you see what kind of a group of people we are. We're a pretty diverse group of people. We have different cultural backgrounds. We have different political values. We have different skin colors. We have different languages, some of us. We have all kinds of things that, that could be obstacles to tying us together. And yet we have together this one certainty. We belong to Jesus. And because we belong to Jesus, we belong to one another. The good news of Jesus is the tie that binds He's reconciled us together. The Gospel is the great equalizer. It reminds us that our identity is in and can only be sustained by Jesus Christ. It can only be experienced when we're centering our lives and our conversations together around that reality. And when those things happen, there's tremendous opportunity for our joy. We've got to take the focus off of ourselves and our own earthly circumstances. By the way, that's the root of all depression. Did you know that? As complex as depression can be, the, like the one thing that's clearly the root of all depression, and every psychologist will tell you this, is it's a focus on yourself. It, it just, you know, whether that's intentional or whether it's non-intentional, depression tends to collapse us in on ourselves. And when your eyes are drawn inward, it draws you downward. Jesus is saying, no, turn your attention outward, church. Look at who I am. Look at what I'm doing. Look at the bigness of that. You know, the other, the other reason why we get so depressed when we turn inward is because we find so, such smallness, <laughs> such limitation. And he's saying, no, look outward. Look at me. There's no limitation in me. Look at the grandness and the majesty of who I am and what I'm doing. And it will, it will draw out of you awe and joy and wonder. Just like when you go to the Grand Canyon, if you've ever done that. And you look out and you see that vast bigness and you go, I am so great. I am so big. No, you go, I'm so small. And this is so awesome. And you feel good. 
It's because that's what you were made for. You were made to find your joy in the grandness and the bigness of something outside of yourself, and there's nothing grander or bigger than the one who made it all. And there's nothing more glorious than not, not only making it all, but loving you through it all. So our conversations ought to be about sharing that gospel together, delighting in God together, encouraging one another in His Word, praying together for the advancement of the gospel in our community, bearing one another's burdens in love, maturing in discipleship, growing in self-sacrificial love for one another and for Christ's sake. That's God's heart for us, Edgewater. And it should be our heart as well. And it's the pathway to our joy. So, I'm done. Here's to, though, as we open this book and we continue to dive into it, here's to a renewed season of finding our joy in Christ. Here's to a renewed season of finding our joy in Christ and partnering together in unity in the work of His Gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this incredible, encouraging Word. Thank You for Jesus. Lord, how easy it is for us to, to, to forget Him. How easy is it for us to take our eyes off of, of the grandness of who He is, who You are, Father, and what You're doing I say that as one who's done that a lot. And as one who's experienced some real discouragement because of that. Father, would You increase our joy? Would You make us a people who see You? who know who you are, who know who we are in you, who see what you're doing, even, even when it's sometimes overshadowed by all the stuff around that seems kind of broken. Help us to see there's the spark. There's what he's doing. And be reminded, Lord, that, that you have not forsaken your people. You never will. You will finish the work that you've begun. You will bring it to completion until the day of Christ. And that's our unwavering hope. Give us joy. And help us to partner together in the spread of that joy for your glory and for the nations. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.